I think over some of the people that I have known over the many years, and remember many of them who have gone right back out into what we call the world or drifted back into their own habits, it makes me remember something my sister said to my father many, many years ago, probably 40 years ago now. She said, Daddy, she said, you talk about God all the time as if you know him on a first-person basis, but she said, God is not real to me. My father tried to explain a little bit about how God could become real to my sister, but he never really succeeded. And as I look at what has happened in many, many lives, I have to ask and answer that question today. Why is God so unreal to people? And how real is God to you? Now, in paganism, like animism, heathenism, some of the ignorance and savagery of the Philippine Islands or Papua New Guinea or Mindoro in the Philippines, uh, tribes like the Matabili or the Hausa, the Igbo, the Zulus, the Mindoros of the Philippines, the Maoris of New Zealand, the ancient wayfarers who built the stone statuary on Easter Island of the great gods that seemed to be gazing off to far horizons waiting for the arrival of the fabled white men who would come on ships that looked like gulls because they would have sails and would look like wings. These ignorant people, Micronesians, Melanesians, Africans, Polynesians, the Incas of Peru, searching for some way to pacify the harshness of life because life was unfair. Life was filled with misery, with labor, with bad crops with rumbling volcanoes, with landslides and hurricanes, and with floods and with drought and famine. And life was filled with disease and suffering and malnutrition and starvation. And life was also constantly facing the possibility of death. And so because they could see where life came from, they began to worship life, want to cling to it, hang on to it, and there was really no difference in their desire to both worship that ultimate source of life, because life could be, even sometimes under rather dire circumstances, rather good. Life is good, and we like to live it. Well, life is good to the Matabiles in Zimbabwe, and life was good to the ancient Incas in Peru. Life was good to the savages screaming as the high priest took the heart of a living sacrifice out of her body, killing her in the process, and ate it atop the pyramid at San Juan de Teotihuacan down near Mexico City. Life was good, and they were worshiping life, and so they sacrificed a life to this God who gave them life in their ignorance. But in Christianity, you have the story of a God and of a devil, of good and of bad. You have the story of a God who came to this earth and who died and was resurrected to live again, and therefore who conquered death and all that death means. And in all of religion, from the Catholic Church to all of the 400-plus denominations of the Protestant Church, you have millions upon millions of people who elaborately, sometimes with tremendous ritual, like the High Mass of the Catholic Church with their penance and all of that, their confessional booths and their rosaries and so on, are going through elaborate rituals, fasting, undergoing sometimes rigorous abstinences, to accomplish, in effect, the same thing the heathens did in offering a living human sacrifice to overcome death, to stave off dreaded penalties in this life and forever after this life, to stave off the idea of suffering for all eternity in some horrifying condition that was pictured for them by their preachers from the time of Augustine and even before. And, of course, at the same time, to celebrate life, 
to learn how to live life to the full, to live life happily, abundantly, successfully, joyously even, and we all want that, and I certainly do, to live a life free from pain. I right now have a little splinter in my little finger, so deeply embedded I can't get it out. It's been there for a week. It's causing me no end of pain. My whole body is concerned about my little finger. Gradually it will work its way to the surface, I think. If not, I've got to go to the doctor and he's got to cut it out. It's funny how a tiny little thing like a splinter and just gathering wood for the fireplace can upset your life. We say, honey, I'm suffocating. Would you please open the window in the automobile? We say, honey, I am starving to death. Let's stop and get something to eat. We say, honey, would you please shut the window? I am freezing cold. We complain. Day in and day out, the slightest little discomfiture can cause great complaints. We like our bodies to be perfectly adaptable to the environment, and we like the temperature exactly just right. We like to have a pleasantly, comfortably full stomach. We like to feel euphoric sensations, and oftentimes we go to great lengths to ingest into our bodies through practically every available orifice some mode or method of altering visual or mental perceptions of our environment. Out at the Rose Parade the other day, as thousands, well, nearly a million, I guess, were out there eventually, but there were tens of thousands sleeping on the streets for like two days in advance. Those kids didn't go out there, like one of them, to get shot in the face with a pistol less than three or four blocks from where I slept. They didn't go out there to have acid thrown in their face or to be stabbed or raped or mugged or to be hauled away in the police vans that were busily carting them away by the dozens. They didn't go out there to get smacked in the face or kicked in the groin. They went out there with their sleeping bags and their blankets and their wood for a fire and their sacks of marshmallows to throw at each other and their firecrackers secreted away in their clothing to have a good time. So as they're throwing footballs back and forth across the street as the cars are just bumper to bumper and honking and everybody going absolutely insane, the football bounces off a car. But the fellow in the car has had about nine beers and a couple of whiskeys. That makes him mad. Jumps out of the car, grabs the kid, and starts to beat on him. Three people jump on this melee and four more join in. A marshmallow just casually tossed at somebody. Triggers a temper. He gets mad. They start to fight. A knife comes out. and Somebody's lying writhing on the pavement with his life's blood leaking into the gutter. And he's dead. But they wanted to live life to the full and to alter their visual perceptions. And besides, it's New Year's. Now, the old year was not a happy year, let's face it. It wasn't happy for most people, but they go around drunken, and many of them on drugs, saying, Happy New Year! What they mean is, let's have an orgy right now, right here and now. Let all of humanity take off their clothes, and let's just have a fabulous orgy right here. Let's enjoy everything the human mind and body can devise, here and now, to enjoy. And in doing so... You walk by the next morning, you look at all the trash, the litter, and debris, and you see many of these bodies huddled over there against the fence, people stepping over them, their sleeping bag is trampled with dirt and mud, sound asleep, passed out, drunkenly oblivious to the parade going by. They waited two days to see. They waited two days to see the parade, and they missed the whole show, and it was over. And from the angle many of those kids see the parade, they're looking up at the horses that are doing their thing as they go down the street anyway. So it's a sort of a, uh, a dubious prize after waiting that long to have all that much uh, enjoyment. But the Christian religion is a religion that seems, as the pagans might view it, or as people who are agnostics or skeptics might view it, a religion which seems to worship an absentee 
God, does it not? Oftentimes people like to follow some evangelist who seems to be on a first-name basis with God. So when he lies, which he does, and he is lying when he says it, God spoke to my heart the other day, and I talked to the Lord, and the Lord told me this, and God told me that. Why, God was speaking to me even a moment ago as I was talking to you about that $100 bill you're going to send me. The Lord spoke to my heart. He's a liar. God hadn't spoken to him. He hadn't heard a thing. It's just out of his own mind. But other people would like to believe that. And it's the next best thing to talking to God. If you can grab hold of the hand of the man who says he's talking to God on practically a Frank Henry basis. Hi, Lord. Hello, Frank. How are you today? Fine, Lord. How did your day in heaven go? Here's somebody on a first-name basis with God. Let's follow that man no matter where he leads because he's talking to God. But in the Christian religion, how many of those followers out there ever heard God's voice? How many of those people out there in the wheelchairs and waiting to be healed and listening to this evangelist telling all these secrets about people he has no business to know to try to convince them that he's sort of a voyeur? Not, pardon me, wrong word. That he maybe he is clairvoyant? Maybe I should have used them both. But that he understands all of these secrets about these people? And they want to believe that because they want to somehow get in contact with a God who is not real to them. God is very far distant to them, farther than the stars that glitter in the heavens that are, as we know, billions and sometimes more than that, parsecs, billions of light years away. Well, you know, when I see the formerly very devout slip back into old habits, and I know families that now have Christmas trees in their homes, well, they knew so much better. They'd studied it all, looked up all the references, proved to themselves the utter pagan origin of Christmas trees, and so on. If I see people drifting back into habits that are hurtful to their health, of compromising with God's laws in this little way and that little way, you know, I want to tell you something that is really a very human-level experience that a lot of us have undergone. If you are following a religious leader you're listening to him and he is preaching to you and he stands there as a leader and you begin to understand that he has an Achilles heel. And at first, human beings tend to put people up on a pedestal, but you become disappointed in the human leader in whom you trusted and had confidence. You discover some very, very bad things about this man. Oftentimes, people get all mixed up in their concept between the man that is preaching to them and the God that he's telling them about. When they become disappointed in a man, sometimes they reason this way. Well, he did this, or he did not do that. He omitted this act, or he committed that act, and he got away with it. Therefore, why can't I? I can probably get away with that, too, because there he is. He's living, and he's doing fine. You know, years ago, when Job was stricken by Satan the devil with God's permission, the so-called friends of Job were utterly unable to see what Job's problem really was. They did not spot Job's self-righteousness. They thought Job was a wicked, evil man, but was concealing it. And they argued till they were almost breathless with Job, trying to get Job to admit his hidden sins. And Job never would. When the arguments were all over at the end of the book, the eternal God said of these other people, Zophar and all the rest of them, Eliab said, You have not spoken that thing of me which is true, as my servant Job hath. So as you read through the book of Job, their contentions are basically man's arguments. Job's responses, even though Job has not yet come to himself, has not yet seen the sin of self-righteousness, 
Job's responses are nevertheless that thing which is true about the eternal. A couple of interesting chapters, chapter 20 and chapter 21 of the book of Job. Job's arguments, well, answering what Zophar said, which is something that I think comes into our minds many times. I think about people that I have known, people who were very, very evil people, individuals who were very, very high in a religious hierarchy, but who were thieves, hypocrites, crooks, down-and-out embezzlers, liars, cheats, thieves who stole massive amounts of money and live in fabulous mansions and drive Ferraris and Maseratis and Mercedes and his wives are wearing full-length minks and on and on. And I think of all of this and then I read this chapter and it gives me a little bit of a balance. I'll just skip along through chapter 20 where Zophar is really trying to tell Job how evil and iniquitous he is. Verse 4, he said, Don't you know this of old, since man was first here on the earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite, but for a moment, in other words, Job, you know, it all happened to you so suddenly. You're such a wicked person, you're such a hypocrite. What you've got, the complete disintegration of all of your properties, the collapse of your home, the death of your wife, all of your kids, the entire camel, goat, and sheep herd is gone, and you're sitting there with boils, leaking out the pus, scraping them with a potsherd on a pile of ashes. A man could not come any lower than Job had gone. And they're trying to convince him it's his fault. Verse 6, Though his excellency mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, yet he shall perish forever like his own dung. That's the wicked he's talking about. That's you, Job. They which have seen him shall say, Where is he? He shall fly away as a dream and shall not be found. Yea, he shall be chased away as a vision of the night. The eye which saw him shall see him no more, neither shall his place any more behold him. His children shall seek to, to please the poor, and his hands shall restore their goods. His bones are full of the sin of his youth, which shall lie down with him in the dust. Verse 14, his meat in his bowels is turned, it's the gall of asps within him. Verse 20, surely he shall not feel quietness in his belly, he shall not save of that which he desired. Verse 23, when he is about to fill his belly, God shall cast the fury of his wrath upon him, and rain it upon him right while he's eating. So Zophar is trying to emphasize the suddenness of the collapse and the calamity of the wicked. Toward the end of it he says in verse 28, the increase of his house shall depart. His good shall flow away in the day of his, meaning God's wrath. This is the portion of a wicked man from God, trying to say, Job, that's you. That's what's happened to you. It's as sure as the rising of the sun. That's what happens to the wicked. And the heritage appointed unto him by God. Now Job answered and said, Hear diligently my speech, and let this be your consolation. Suffer me that I may speak, and after that I have spoken, mock on. But Job is about to speak the truth. As for me, is my complaint to man... If it were so, why should not my spirit be troubled? Mark me and be astonished and lay your hand upon your mouth. Even when I remember I am afraid and trembling takes hold of my flesh. Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, are mighty in power? That's true. That happens. That's the real world in which we live. It may shock you to hear me say this. Crime pays. There's no way that old statement, crime doesn't pay, is correct today. It just depends on what your medium of exchange is you're talking about. Crime pays. The rich of this world are largely crooks. The more honest, the more hardworking, the more frugal, the more moral people are, the less successful they tend to be in this world. It's just a principle that happens to be a fact, a well-known fact. Their seed, verse 8, of the wicked is established in their sight with them and their offspring before their eyes. 
Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. They're bull genders and fails not. They're cow calves and cast not her calf. In other words, they're prosperous in their business, their herds and flocks. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance. They take the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ. They live it up. They live well. They're the ones with the yachts and the sports cars and the fabulous homes. They're the ones with the fat wallets and big bank accounts. They're the ones that own whole suites of buildings. One of my good friends was out golfing with Baron Hilton. Baron is his name, not a, a title. And he's Nicky's Hilton, old, Nicky Hilton's older brother. I think Baron's in his 60s. And he and Milton Scott are out there golfing. How, how, how rich is Baron Hilton? One of, other, one of his, uh, Milt's other close friends is uh, Asan Khashoggi. Khashoggi is a multi-multi-billionaire. He has something like 17 jet aircraft. These are personal friends. But, of course, they can only eat one steak at a time. And they can only ride in one airplane at a time. They spend their days in wealth, verse 13, and in a moment go down to the grave. Therefore they say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? Utterly without God in the world, and yet their success is the bitter envy of millions of Christian people who could not bring themselves to do what these men do. Lo, their good is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is the candle of the wicked put out? Well, he's actually arguing that really it's not very often. A little later on, in verse 28, you say, Where is the house of the prince, and where are the dwelling places of the wicked? Have you not asked them that go by the way? Do you not know their tokens that wicked? the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction? You know that actually, if you look at the original here, that is a preferred reading that the wicked is spared in the day of destruction. They shall be, you read in the margin, it says, led away. In other words, escape when it is brought forth to the day of wrath. They should be led away in the day of wrath because they have fenced themselves about with protection and so on. So Job is arguing that the wicked seem to survive. They seem to prosper. The way seems to be easy before them. And he's arguing, why is that? Jeremiah was led to pray, How long, O Lord? David himself did. Shall the wicked prosper? Righteous men down through many, many years have looked at the wicked. And it has really been an impact upon their conscience. It has deeply grieved and deeply troubled them. And as they look at this conflicting, seemingly set of standards of people who go through rigorous uh, rituals, who are abstemious, who seemingly go without, who are the salt of the earth called God's poor, and who never really have the benefits that the wicked people do. Sometimes some very hurtful ideas begin to creep into their minds about whether or not it is really all that fair. Unfortunately, when people begin to create justification for sin, when they begin, and we all have to justify what we are and what we do. I don't care who you are, what you do, what your appetites are, what your problems are. You must look at yourself in the mirror and do several times a day. And every time you look at yourself, you've got to justify yourself. You have to, because otherwise you'd be a suicide. You couldn't live with yourself if you don't justify yourself in your position, your point of view, in something you want to do. I don't care what habit, what appetite. What it is you're doing to fulfill, you've got to try to justify yourself. And the way to do that is go there or there or he or she or they, but you cannot ever say here. Here is the problem. That is, unless you are deeply converted. So when people decide to justify sin, uh, 
and they use these arguments about the wicked, even wicked Christian people, wicked Christian leaders, wicked spiritual people, they always want to talk about how these people got away with it. But what was it? Who was it all of these Christian people were really worshiping before they, as we say, slid back or went back into the world? Turn to Jeremiah, the second chapter, beginning in verse 5. Jeremiah asked a question that is worth us looking at. What iniquity have your fathers found in me that they're gone far from me and walked after vanity become vain? They didn't say, where is the eternal that brought us out of the land of Egypt? And so on. He said in verse 7, I brought you to a plentiful country that's certainly true of the United States to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. The priests didn't say, where is the eternal? They had their own religion. They weren't trying to find God. They were satisfied with what they had. They that handled the law knew me not. The pastors transgressed me and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. So he said, I will plead with you, and with your children's children, down through the generations, I will continue to plead. Pass over the isles of Kittim, out at Cyprus, in other words, in the Aegean, and send unto Kedar, clear the other way, out into the Moab plains and a rocky fastness of Mount Seir, from east to west, and consider diligently, and see if you can find anything like this among these Gentile peoples, among Greeks and Cretans and Edomites. Has a nation changed their gods which are yet no gods. Now, there is nobody quite so fickle as a so-called Christian. I've known many, many people who have been in and out of six, eight, or more so-called Christian churches. There is nobody quite so fickle as a so-called Christian. Now, Catholics tend to be not quite so fickle. If they are born a Catholic, which is the way you can describe the Catholic religion, one good Catholic told me that. I was born a Catholic. I said, well, that's the whole point I'm trying to make. You didn't make a, a conscious choice. You were reared into this religion and all the rituals. You don't know very much about it. The Catholic religion says that the theories of the fathers are exactly uh, proportionate and equal to the authority of the Bible. They carry the same weight. And that the Pope, speaking from the Holy See, is the other of the tripartite, let's say, arrangement of uh, sacred sources for Roman Catholic doctrine. The Pope, when he speaks from his Holy See in Rome, the traditions of the Fathers and the Bible. Those are all equal. The Bible is not the ascendant document of the Catholic Church. And so when people are reared in that, and they're not told to read the Bible. You just heard a sermon about Bible study, point after point about how to drink more meaning out of the Bible. You'll never hear that in the Catholic Church. They don't even own Bibles, and some places are not allowed to own Bibles in foreign countries. I doubt if you'll find a Bible in, in one out of 100 Catholic homes in the nation of France. I don't think you'll find one out of, say, 100 homes. They won't even own one. There's no use for it. There's no purpose for a Bible in those nations. The priests tell them what to do in Latin. They don't understand it, but it's a lot of fun to go and listen to it. But the point is, how many Catholics jump around from place to place? And how many animists and Shintoists and Buddhists, how many Japanese Shintoists jump into Buddhism? Well, the Shintoism is merely the Japanese priestly form of Buddhism, but jump into some other form of religion. They generally don't. You can go back through history through thousands of years, and some of these other pagan countries have maintained the staunchest, devout faithfulness and loyalty to the religion of their fathers. But not so in the so-called Christian religion. Because, you see, Christians think they worship an absentee God. 
Now, Catholics don't. They can see what they worship. They're driving along in their automobile, and there's what they worship right there in the dash, going to keep them from a wreck. St. Christopher. Over in the niche in their home is something they can look at. And they can look at the priest, and they can see, and they can see the Holy Father, so-called. They can kiss his hand, kiss his foot. He's there. He's real. He's flesh and blood. And they, they just faint when they see him go by in the square at St. Peter. They've got a religion where there's something tangible there, and the priest is like a stand-in directly for God. So when they go to the confessional, little old dark slather, Father, I've sinned. Please forgive me. What'd you do? Well, I did. You know, you heard all the jokes about the Jew that sat in. We got a daily double a day. All these funny jokes about the confessional booth. But in fact, when Catholics go and they confess that they've done this and that, and the priest tells them that they can be absolved by doing penance, they believe that. They walk out of that refreshed. They walk out of it with a clear conscience. Everything, the weight is lifted off their shoulder. They don't suffer the guilt that a lot of Protestant Christians do who go through a lifetime of guilt, never completely convinced that they've been absolved of guilt, and they carry guilt all of their lives because they don't have the same method as the Catholic Church does for the absolution of guilt. So what was this that some of these people worshipped? Was it really God Almighty? that made these fronds on this living plant back here, made the little barbicels of the tiny intricate interlocking mechanism of the feather on a bird whose wings are shaped exactly like an airfoil, and each feather is shaped like another airfoil, and each little barbecue or barbicel is shaped like a little airfoil, and every one of them are interlocking, and they're all absolutely porous and feather-like in their weight. You know, the fine old quill pens, the reason you could use a quill pen is because it's hollow. And ink, as you know, will the way it'll absorb or, or hold it, the same principle in the well of a modern metal pen. Is it the little slit there, a little hold for air, a little hole for air, and the hollow tube carries the ink. Well, they would just take a quill and slit it and make a little split up here. And they were the finest pens. Some of the finest old documents in the world were done back in the 16th, 17th century with the, the tail feather of a turkey, you know, or, or a pheasant or something like that, with a quill pen. Very, very few of us ever look into the cleavage properties of minerals, or why quartz is always formed the way it is, or what is water in its three states, and how can it be converted from one to another, and look into the universe the way many of God's great men did. David was quite a naturalist. Certainly Job was. Solomon was. The Apostle Paul had a good deal to say about that, as we will see in a few moments. But many of these people who have gone straight back into hurtful and harmful habits and sins and who are justifying themselves were never really introduced to God. They were introduced to a concept, an idea, a fable, their own imagination, tradition, the church, history. They thought God was a collection of buildings and mowed lawns and fountains and monuments and beautiful balustrades and thick carpets and chorale concerts and weddings and ministerial conferences and feasts and moving sermons and potlucks and church parties and weddings and babies and trips and exciting things about new growth and new publications and newspapers and magazines in full color and radio and television programs and church going and tithing and social contacts and bumper stickers for the Feast of Tabernacles and other brethren. That's what God was. God was all of those things. God was somehow behind their paycheck. When they got their paycheck, that was God's work. It was always, this is the work. This is God's work. Somehow, God was there. But take away, just take away the home, the collections of buildings, 
the fountains, balustrades, the monuments, the thick carpets, all the socials, the concerts, the ministerial conferences, the auditorium, the feasts, the moving sermons, the potlucks, church parties, weddings, and babies. Take away the men and girls clubs, take away the boys clubs and spokesmen's clubs and Y-O-U and S-E-P. Take away the TV programs, publications, church-going, tithe-paying brethren, social contacts and potlucks, and what do you got left? Just you out there in the society with all the rest of these Tom, Dick, and Harry's going around, anonymous, with none of all this to look to, without the social melee, without demands on your time almost 100% week in and week out, without almost weekly crises to be all attuned to, without almost monthly triumphs to rejoice over, without a constant commitment to some big crisis to fight the devil here or to rejoice because God has blessed you there, without something rearing up into the sky like a modern Tower of Babel, a great big building to be built that you can admire and have a part of, without your team to cheer on to victory, without the mother making a skirt for her own precious 14-year-old daughter who wants to win the cheerleading concept in Y.O.U. Take away all of this, and what do you got left? Just you. All alone, abandoned by your friends, shunned by your own relatives. And oftentimes, people think, abandoned, shunned, ignored by God. God's gone. Well, that's because they were never introduced to God. God was never real to them. God was sort of an absentee God, and they could only see all this melange of idiot commitment to constant programs of some sort that was a demand on their time. And they thought that they were religious. It's just like I thought I had a lot of friends. I had a regular... I was just like uh, Muhammad Ali. He couldn't travel anywhere without the, the whole bunch of guys, you know, hundreds of them. White hair, hair going up here, everywhere, huge big Cadillacs. I mean, 14 Cadillacs pull up to curb Muhammad Ali's here. And he's got bundles, $100. How are you, how you doing, Frank? Here. Have, he's buying houses for people. Elvis couldn't get away from the crowds, but Muhammad Ali collected people. A lot of these people made millions and millions of dollars and gave away millions and millions of dollars to sycophants and to followers of theirs that they thought were their friends. I could hardly turn around without bumping into some people. I couldn't stay in bed for an extra half hour when I got to Big Sandy with two hours difference to make up without one guy that was parked on my doorstep every morning. We'd see him coming down the walk and Cheryl would say, oh no, it's him. We'd just holler down, we're dead tired. Go on in, get a cup of coffee, we'll be there later. Here he'd be. My friend. My friend. I had lots of friends like that. And then when the axe fell, I never saw them, never heard from them again. I have not heard a whimper, a whisper. I've not gotten a postcard or a telephone call from that man I just talked about and from dozens of the others. But I took them on trips all the way to Singapore and Hong Kong. I took them with me dozens of times, all around, over to Europe, to the college, took them up to Tahoe, took them skiing. We went to SEP and put them on the airplane, flew them up and let them camp out and catch great big lake trout. Those were friends. Sat around a campfire with a deer hung up over there and went trucking through the woods, you know, year after year, sharing the deepest emotions and frustrations about life and the work. My friends! But they're gone. Never called me again. Now, I did not decide that what had happened to me was from God or was of God or that God had anything to do with it. Because when you read four lies on a sheet of paper, in Jesus' name, there's just something about me, I'm, I'm just that type of a person, I guess, that that doesn't add up. 
I don't believe a lie just because it's issued in Jesus' name. So I didn't. And I continued and had to resist many, many influences that wanted me to do exactly what others have done, abandon the Sabbath, abandon tithing, abandon many portions of God's laws. Simply compromise with God's laws. Drift into a little more of a libertine church. You know, the way it all started out was in the Garden of Eden, and if you think I'm going to bore you with that, I won't. I'm just going to refer to it. I'm just going to refer to it. It does say very quickly that in the Garden of Eden, in the case of Adam and Eve, the minute they had committed original sin, which was not a sex sin, the sin was stealing and was coveting and lusting and disobeying their only parent. But as a result of that, and I've covered all of that in the booklet about guilt and elsewhere, they hid themselves. God comes manifested as a human being, a man, in the garden, and says, Adam, where are you? And they're way over in the thick fronds at a bush somewhere, and they kind of called out timorously, we're over here, Lord. What are you doing over there? Well, we heard your voice, and we were afraid. And so we hid ourselves. First they covered their bodies, and then they hid themselves from God. I do want to turn to the account of where the Israelites had an opportunity a lot of us have prayed for. I myself have had that desire. I have wanted a great bright angel to actually come to me and sort out some of the difficulties sometimes. I've wanted some messenger from Almighty God to appear to me. I have wanted probably as much as any human being to really hear a direct voice, to see some direct phenomenon absolutely irrefutable with ironclad proof this is of God and from God as a reassurance or sometimes perhaps just to make sure that I stick to it and do what I've been called to do. But it's only been silence. I've heard no voice. No hand has appeared to me out of nowhere to pat me on the shoulder and say, Ted, you're doing the right thing. I've never had God reach down and take me by the hand. I've never had the Lord speak to me audibly. But these people had that opportunity. Here's the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now, they saw that mountain. And notice, beginning in verse 16 of the preceding chapter, in the 19th chapter, it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount. Now, I once saw a thick cloud. And, you know, it's amazing here in East Texas when a thunderstorm will come along if it's particularly vicious one, and we'll be in for them probably in the spring again, about March and April. And sometimes a cloud can be so black, you just don't know how did it get that color. It's because, I guess, the moisture content is just so terrific, it's nearly a saturated blob of water that it's just so black dark. Well, sometimes you'll see them down very, very low, just looking like they're rolling along only about 60 feet above the top of the surface of the land, and those are dangerous clouds. There can be a tornado in those things. And when you see a great huge thunderstorm 60,000 feet towering in the air, especially at night if you're flying by one in a jet airplane, it just looks like it's just a glow all the time. It's just flashing with lightning. Inside that thunderstorm, going up and down like pistons, are, are grapefruit-sized blocks of ice. An airplane actually flying under the overhang or an anvil could get itself shot down because sometimes moving at a couple of hundred miles an hour, those great huge blobs of ice are just spewed out the top of a thunderstorm and come raining down. Now, long before they reach the surface of the earth, under most cases, they disintegrate into rain or sleet and sometimes a violent storm, marble, golf ball, and even baseball-sized hail, and once in a while, grapefruit-sized hail will actually tear up roofs and destroy automobiles. 
powerful storm. These people were treated to a real sign of power. And the voice of the trumpet, it wasn't any man's trumpet, it was an angelic trumpet, exceeding loud so that all the people who was in the camp trembled. This was an awesome display of what seemed to be natural power, but obviously was supernatural, and they heard this great trumpet. Mount Sinai, verse 18, was altogether on a smoke because the Eternal descended upon it in fire. God Almighty came down to this earth, and when he did, the earth quaked at his presence. The smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, he probably called out God's name. And God answered him by a voice. Moses had a unique experience. Now, this was not God's voice, because remember, Christ tells us in the New Testament, no man has either seen his face or heard his voice at any time. It says a voice, so it had to be a spokesman. It was probably one of the archangels, but it was a voice directly from God's throne. And the Eternal came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Eternal called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And he was warned not to let the people break through and the priests and so on or to be sanctified. And God spake all these words, saying, and here begins chapter 20, verse 1, the giving of God's holy and righteous law. Right at the end of the giving of the law, notice verse 18, as the last word of the Ten Commandments is complete, all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. They were at the point of a heart attack. They were terrified. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to test you, to prove you that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. What does Almighty God mean when he tells us in the New Testament, let every one of you work out his own salvation with fear and trembling? And who among us is so acutely attuned to the voice of God that we literally tremble to sin? That the concept of sinning of transgressing, of doing something displeasing to God, of trampling on His Sabbath, trampling on His law, breaking even what Christ says are the least of these commandments, makes us quake in our boots. I preached a lot of sermons against fear. Fear of a man, fear of a hierarchy, fear of religion, having your life dominated by fear, sure. And I believe every word I've ever spoken on that subject and intend to preach many more of them, I'm sure, in the future. Because I'm not for fear religion imposed by man to control you. But unless you fear God, unless you tremble to break God's law, you're not a Christian. You just had some concept. You were worshiping all these things I told you about. All these other things which when they're taken away, your excuse is, well, it's all over, it's all gone, it was all a farce. This man was evil, he was bad. They, they did it, he did it, she did it, they did it. So that's it. Uh, I'm all through with God. Well, the people didn't want to hear God's voice anymore because it scared them just about out of their minds. And Moses said, God is here to prove you that his fear may be before your faces that you sin not. Now, now, let's understand that statement. What does it mean? That you do something not, meaning that you don't have any fun. God is here to get you fearful so you don't ever have any fun. 
You don't ever enjoy life. You miss all the thrills. You miss all the excitement. You miss all the ebullience and the joy and the happiness and the success and the fulfillment, the reward. You miss all the wonderful things you see the wicked enjoying. You'll never be rich. You'll never have a gorgeous sports car. You'll never have a summer cottage in the mountains. You'll never travel to Europe and go to the Riviera and lie in the sun. You'll never be aboard a cruise ship in the Caribbean. You'll never enjoy the things you look at in the travel section of the Sunday paper, the things you look at in the travel magazine in the back when you get on the airplane and look at all the wonderful places there are to visit in, like Mauna Kea and the big island of Hawaii. Those things will be denied to you. That's for the wicked. That's for the people in the world. God wants you to fear so you don't do any of those things. No, that's not what he's saying. Sin is what will deny those things to you, and the lack of sin is what will produce them, give them to you. Because God shows that sin, the breaking of God's cardinal points of the Ten Commandments, and of all of the Ten Commandments as magnified by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, is merely that which causes everything around us that is the big problem. It's why we have sickness, disease, and debility. Notice what the Apostle Paul said about Almighty God and about why it is that many people seem to argue that God is not real and that God seems to hide himself from us. Actually, it's the other way around, as we have learned. In the 17th chapter of the book of Acts, he is talking to the people on Mars Hill, the famous Areopagites who were the Stoics and they were philosophers and they believed in all their pagan gods. I won't read all that he said, but he, first of all, talked about the altars he saw and the altar to the unknown God. And immediately when he began to declare God to them, verse 23, As I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And notice the way he introduced God to those people. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth. And that's a big place, heaven. That's so many multi-billions of parsecs and light years away and all that is in between that it boggles our mind to think about even our own solar system. And he's Lord of all of that and the earth, and the earth is a big place to us, yet it's a speck in a vast universe to God. Dwells not in temples made with hands, a human hand, quarrying out stone to build some structure, drafty and dank and dark and imperfect in various areas, and God's going to move inside. Neither is worship with men's hands. You don't, you don't do things with your hands and, uh, that... that is pleasing to God. That doesn't do, do anything for God. He's not worshipped with men's hands. He doesn't need chisels and adzes and sledgehammers and hammers and carpenter saws and nails so that we can worship God as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life. Now, just think about that word for a minute. And then maybe someday go look it up and study all about life. Living organisms. Start with protozoa and spirochetes and bacteria and viruses and so on and come all the way down to a living cell and then look at the collections of cells and their division and look at genetics and how it is that we can actually procreate and how it is that we came to have life. And what is our life? Well, my heart is in there, thanks be to the eternal God, and it's going like this. Fantastic muscle. It just never seems to tire. Now, my hand could do that and I could keep talking for a few minutes and my hand's going to cramp and absolutely wear out. I can do this with my arm, I can stand here and wiggle my ears, I could bend my knees, 
And any part of my body that I exercise for very many minutes at a time would just wear out. But at some point in time, in my mom's womb, a little tiny microscopic thing could be seen, and if you look very closely, it looked like it was pulsating. It wasn't even developed yet, just a little liquid, kind of a fluid, kind of a thing. That was me. That was my heart beginning. And from the time that developed in my mother's womb, that heart has been going at that same rhythm, except for about the 25 years when I played basketball, it was going like that all the time. Pretty faithful, powerful muscle. You ought to keep real good care of it. And you ought to be really careful about what you're doing to make sure that muscle gets all the oxygen supply it needs. But you know, God gives us our life. No article or building or collection of people or hierarchy of men or stone castle or monument or temple did that for you. And breath. Now, I think about breath of that miraculous mixture of life-giving substance, especially oxygen. Because, you know, I've flown in airplanes for years, and I've known how to put people to sleep. I get people back there a little rowdy. All i got to do is crank a cabin up and just raise it up 11,000 feet and give them about 20 minutes. They're all asleep. And I'm up there drinking oxygen, breathing oxygen. Everybody else is just pleasantly asleep because they don't have enough oxygen, and that makes their brain go to sleep. But as I think about breath, every single time I draw a breath, I am breathing in from an envelope that has weight and occupies a certain space and just fills this earth. And from some unbeknownst reason, and no one knows, not any meteorologist, here and there are various pockets, almost like you would see unevenness in a carpet all around the earth. And where there is a shallow dip in that envelope high up in the superstratosphere, it is called low pressure. And where there is a kind of a big dome in the waves of this envelope of air, it's called high pressure. And because of the movement of the earth and because of the photons uh, uh, from the sun that come in and bombard the earth with ultraviolet light and the heat that comes into the earth, it causes these winds to circle around. And the placement of the continents in a certain way causes everything from the Humboldt curtain, uh, current, I should say, around Madagascar to the Japanese current that caused the other day Anchorage, Alaska to have, over Christmas, as you know, a quite warm day while they were freezing and trying to spray ice over the crops to prevent them from freezing in a hard wind down in northern Florida. And so all of these fabulous weather patterns that are brought about by phenomenal, uh, natural phenomena on this earth that cause us to be able to drink in and to breathe this air. Notice what the Apostle Paul said. He gives to all life and breath and all things and is made of one blood. Now, we know it doesn't matter whether you're black or yellow or white or whatever you are. There are certain blood types. And, of course, this horrible thing today of people with polluted blood, but that's a very minuscule problem apparently, but it is one that is serious to those who are affected by it. But we're all basically one blood. All nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined the times before appointed, Almighty God placed the nations where they are today. All of world history has come according to his plan, has developed according to where God placed the, the nations and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Now listen to this. For in him... We live and move and have our being. Now, if I've got a goldfish tank, or if I've got one of these tropic fish tanks up there, and I look, fish swim in the water. And in that water, they live and move and have their being. 
And they live and move by drifting along through the water and working their gills, and they're totally an aquatic creature. And their little gills are taking out tiny little globules of oxygen suspended in the water that is put there either by oxygenation through uh, disturbing the water by a stream of water. We know the little pump that continually causes it. That's an artificial means of inducing oxygen into the, into the water or by an abundance of aquatic plants. If there are enough aquatic plants that are there, they're actually putting oxygen into the water. You can have eutrophication of sun streams, which is the warmth that causes the sudden or explosive growth of various types of bacteria and algae, which chokes the stream to take so much oxygen out of it that the fish die. And so that happens in a lot of American streams because of industry dumping heated water back into it, which causes that eutrophication of the water. Fish are swimming in the sea, and in that water they live and move and have their being. And I'm walking in a solid envelope of air, and that air is a miracle. And I'm attuned to it with my nostrils and this bellows called my lungs. And every time I breathe in of it, it's a miracle. My lungs take the oxygen and take out the carbon dioxide and put it back out into the atmosphere where it's needed by all of the living plants. And they, in turn, absorb the carbon dioxide. And with the rays of the sun, they give off oxygen. And, of course, little diatoms in the sea do the same thing. So when I read this, this, this statement of the Apostle Paul of how we are a part of the ecosystem, we are creatures of a vibrant, moving, living organism, and we are part of it. Now, it had a beginning, and it's gradually running down. Paul introduces the Creator God to these pagans, the one who made everything, not the one that they can make, but the one who made everything. In him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we're his children, we ought not to think the Godhead is like gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day. And that day is appointed, and that day is surely ticking away, as surely as these people said Happy New Year. There's one more day off that calendar that God has in heaven, and that day is appointed, in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, who is Christ, whereof he has given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. Now, we know what their response was to that moving sermon, but Almighty God came down, became a man, died for the sins of the world, and is alive again, and is going to judge this earth, and is coming back on a day that God Almighty knows. Let's turn to Isaiah 55, verse 1. In conclusion, Isaiah 55 and verse 1. Sometime I want to again hear the gorgeous aria called the Elijah, and to hear this one verse that is sung by the tenor that we will read too. But God says, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come ye to the waters, verse 1, and he that has no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me here, and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. 
Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Behold, you shall call a nation that you know not, and nations that knew you not shall run unto thee because of the Eternal your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified thee. Seek ye the Eternal while he may be found. Halley's Comet is approaching closer to the earth. If you want to see it during this life, in your lifetime, you'd better see it while it is near. Otherwise, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and you will never see it. You will die and you will never see it. There is a time when Almighty God comes near to your life. He brushes against your life. He opens a door and says something inaudibly, but through His Spirit, into your mind. Seek you the Eternal while He may be found. Call you upon him while he is near. There may be a time when he cannot be found. There may be a time when he is not near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the eternal, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then God says of all these thoughts we've had, as we read what Job's friends thought of him, and if we think about what some people have undergone because they have become disappointed in human leadership and all the excuses we tend to use as we justify ourselves for the habits that we allow. My thoughts are not your thoughts. God is going to say, well, you might have looked at it that way. And I appreciate that. But I didn't look at it that way. I don't reason the way you do. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Eternal. Many have rejected a human leader, and they have rejected other people, and they think this is going to be an adequate excuse during Judgment Day. And they're going to say before the eternal God, he, she, or they. And God is going to say, oh no, you, you, you. <laughs> 